So we're in a sermon series right now on Romans chapter 8. And every week I've been telling you, because it's true, this is the greatest chapter in the entire Bible on the theme of the absolute security of, of a genuine Christ follower. So if you're a genuine Christ follower, God is going to make sure that you get home. He's committed to your security. Now today we're looking at a single verse in this eighth chapter, which has been described as one of the greatest verses on the theme of comfort and security. So we're looking at a great verse in a great chapter, Romans chapter 8. So here's the verse, Romans 8, verse 28, reads like this. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for them. It has been said, if you and I live within this massive promise, Romans 8, 28, our lives will be more solid and stable than Mount Everest. But as great as this verse is in terms of its comfort and the promise of security, and we'll get into that shortly, I want to begin today with a pastoral word of caution. This verse has been used in ways that have not always been helpful. In fact, in some ways that have been spiritually abusive. People may mean well, but when someone just found out they got some devastating news, for them to have somebody go and quote to them, well, you know what the Bible says, Romans 8, 28, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him. So this tragedy that you've just experienced is going to turn out to be a great blessing for you. You ought to be filled with joy and happiness. No, no, don't go there. That is not helpful. Like I said, it borders on spiritual abuse. At that precise moment, what the individual needs who just got some very difficult news is not some theological lecture or to be reminded of this great verse. What they really need is to know that you care. So maybe it means for you in that setting, just sitting with them, nothing more, letting them know you're there, your care. Maybe it means listening to them if they feel like they want to talk. Maybe it means doing something of very practical nature. Not a general promise, you know, call me if you need me kind of a thing, but really stepping into the situation and doing something that's very practical and help, helpful at that moment. But really, when we need to be anchored in the truth of this is before tragedy strikes. Because the day is going to come, frankly, when you and I are going to need to be anchored in the reality of this particular verse. Romans 8:28. for me personally, and its emphasis on the absolute sovereignty of God was a great source of comfort, especially about four years ago when I went through a bout of cancer. Now I'm pleased to be able to say, and I think I may have shared this with you on one other occasion, as a result of just surgery, that's all I needed, I'm, I believe, cancer-free. But it was this verse, Romans 8, 28, that was such a word of encouragement to me during that difficult season when you're waiting to find out prior to surgery 
Has the cancer spread? And you have all of these fears and apprehensions at that kind of a moment. Now, just to define some of this, by absolute sovereignty, I mean exactly what the Apostle Paul means when he writes Ephesians 1 verse 11 about him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Yes, even my cancer working all things according to the counsel of his will. I mean what is asserted in the old Westminster Confession of Faith. Here it is, this document written back in the 1640s. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely, so God has free will, unchangeably, there's no need to change or alter God's plan, it's already perfect, ordain whatever happens. This does not mean, however, that God is the author of sin. He is not. That he represses the will of his created beings. No, he doesn't. Or that he takes away the freedom or contingency of secondary causes. He doesn't. Rather, the will of created beings and the freedom and contingency of secondary causes are established by him. In other words, well, God is absolutely sovereign, ordaining whatever happens, or in the language of Ephesians 1, working all things according to the counsel of his will. It's also true that we have free will. We are free moral agents responsible for our choices and decisions in life. But there's mystery here. I remember reading about the occasion when somebody came up to the great pastor of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, and asked him if he could reconcile these two truths with each other, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, to which he responded by saying, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. So there you go. Friends, yes, they're like two sides of the same coin, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. J.I. Packer suggests in a great little book, by the way, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, that these two doctrines can be described as what he calls an antinomy. You say, what exactly does that mean? Well, he defines it as an apparent contradiction between a pair of truths that seem irreconcilable, yet both are undeniable. The Bible teaches that we are free moral agents, but it also affirms that God is absolutely sovereign. So each assertion rests on solid biblical evidence, but it's a mystery to you as to how these things fit together. Now, some think that God is sovereign, but that his sovereignty is limited by human freedom. Well, if that's the case, who's really sovereign? We are, right? I mean, we would be sovereign over God. That's not what the Bible teaches. Others assert that God is not involved when bad things happen. So when bad things happen, maybe it's bad luck, maybe it's bad karma, maybe it's fate, whatever. But think about what such a teaching is really saying. It is asserting that there are circumstances in my life and in yours over which God has absolutely no control. So, we're on our own. It essentially would also mean that there's no security, and if God is not orchestrating the events of our lives, our suffering has no purpose. 
Absolutely not. I mean, what a miserable, depressing thought that would be. And again, that's not asserted by Scripture either. Conversely, if you embrace from the heart the teaching of this verse that God is absolutely sovereign, yes, you still have freedom of choice, but God is sovereign, your suffering does has, have purpose. And because you've embraced this reality, then your life will be more solid and secure than Mount Everest. And you'll experience greater peace and joy in your life. You'll still feel the pain because we care. The reason we grieve in different life circumstances is because we care, we love. So you will still grieve life's losses, but you cannot and will not be ultimately crushed. And so the confidence that a sovereign God governs for all things for our ultimate good, planning all that you will ever experience, means that nothing can happen to you without a loving God's total, meticulous, unrelenting care and attention. Now, Paul is not writing this verse primarily to satisfy our intellectual curiosity as to why health issues, financial problems, accidents, challenges come our way, as much as he's urging you and me to trust God when we don't have all the answers. In other words, there's much about the sovereign plan and purpose of God that we just do not understand. We don't always know the 500 or whatever number of reasons God may have in mind for allowing some difficulties to come our way. So once we realize that, then we can affirm the message of this verse and enjoy its comfort and its security. So let's begin by looking at the first of the five questions that are on your sermon notes. First of all, what is this verse actually asserting? Well, the answer comes in the first three words, and we know. Now the we here could be an editorial we where Paul is just referring to himself, I know. But I think in this context, he's really describing what can be known by all Christians. We can assume that he's writing then to all believers at this point, and he's saying, we know. Well, do we know? Do you know? If so, then we're entitled again to the comfort and security of this verse. And I want you to notice it does not say, and we think, and we hope, we desire, we want, none of those things. It says, we know. So in other words, our hope in difficult times is not based on wishful thinking, or for that matter, natural optimism. It is a certainty that is based on the truth that God is in complete control of his world and everything within it. Now that sounds nice, at least it does to me. I hope it does to you. Sounds comforting to know that God is in complete control of the world that he made. But you know, it could just remain print on the page of our Bibles unless we're willing to appropriate these convictions that are asserted here and make them part of our lives. So when you get word that you have a cancerous tumor or a family member is involved in a tragic accident, either you leave this on the page of your Bible, or while grieving, you lay hold of this word, no. And you say, I know. 
I have absolute unshakable confidence, yes, even in my pain, that these convictions stated here are absolutely true. So that's what this verse is asserting. Second question, what is this verse asserting about God? Well, I want to draw to your attention from this passage three major lessons that it points out about the character of God. First of all, it is asserting that God is at work in our lives. Some of you may be familiar with an old Bible translation called the King James Version with regard to this particular verse and its assertion, and we know all things work together for good. Well, a couple things about that statement. First of all, things do not in themselves have any power or authority to change anything or to do anything. They're just there, they're things. And the better manuscripts have God. So it's not, we know all things work together for good, but it's asserting in all things, God works. Or I think maybe even better, God causes. So there's a grand designer behind everything. The things that happen to each one of us then are not the result of random chance, not the result of fate or bad luck or karma. God causes. So your life is God's project. And he's sovereignly working in and through all of the circumstances of your life and mine. Now, there are some things that seem to happen for our good that God seems to permit to happen. In other words, it's as if he removes his restraining influence to allow bad things to happen, even sinful things, evil things to happen in our world. Let me give you an example or two. Friday night, a man speeding on Interstate, excuse me, 35W near 46th Street, runs a red light, flies past this trooper, goes through this red light, crashing into another car, killing all five people involved in that car. I mean, that's tragic. It just broke my heart when I heard that news, but I want to raise for you a very, very difficult question. Could God have prevented that? Yes, he could. Why didn't he? I don't know. But I can tell you that there's such a thing as free will, and free choice, and God at times may pull back on his restraining influences to allow us to assert our freedom. So here's an individual causing this accident, and authorities tell us that there may have been alcohol involvement. So he freely chose to do some things that have caused great pain to a lot of people, including himself. So we have examples of this throughout scripture as well. Think of the story of Job. So Satan comes to God and he says, I know why Job is honoring you with his life. It's because you put this wall, this hedge about him. But let me in on things going on in his situation and he'll curse you and die. Well, God gives Satan permission. Shortly thereafter, Job loses all ten of his kids, and he responds by saying, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He loses his own health, and he responds to his wife by saying, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? 
So God may be pleased in his sovereignty to use a tragedy to turn the events of people and even an entire nation toward himself. As you know, I've been spending a lot of time over the last 29, 30 years in Ukraine. And this war, devastating. It's terrible. It's evil. We trust that those responsible will be held accountable someday. Certainly they will before a holy God. But I also see how God is bringing good out of that evil. Churches are being filled with a lot of worshipers, sort of like what happened in our own country following 9-11. People are turning in faith to Jesus Christ committing their lives to the Savior, getting baptized, joining the church. Churches are involved evangelistically and extending human aid in unprecedented ways for churches throughout that country. So God may be pleased to use difficulties to bring individuals and even nations to the point where they recognize their mortality, their brokenness, their sinfulness, and yes, even their need for a Savior. So, on other occasions, God may actively intervene by his decree to make sure that things are going to happen. One thinks of the flood of the days of Noah, described that way in scripture. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the crucifixion of Jesus, all of these things would serve as examples. So yes, God is at work in our lives. Second of the three lessons, We also learn that God is at work in our lives in everything. And we know that God causes everything. Wait a minute, what does that mean? Flat tires, cancer, debt, difficulties in marriage. What about freak accidents and mistakes that I bring on myself? Yes, absolutely. Everything fits into God's plan. Let me give you some examples. You say, is this saying? This verse about God ordaining everything, does that mean natural, what we call natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, all of these things, hurricanes? Sometime read Exodus chapters 9 and 10, which is talk about the plagues that struck the Egyptians. Each time we read God sent, God sent, God sent. So we read that God appointed the time of each plague and even limited the uh, set limits regarding their destructive activity. Okay, but let's make this a little bit more personal. How about details related to your birth and upbringing? Why is it that you were born in the country, wherever that was, with your particular set of parents? Why weren't you born in some other religious context, maybe some place in the middle of India or China somewhere in the midst of atheism, why weren't you born in a third world poverty-stricken country like Haiti or some other country? Why? Why were you born where you were with the parents that you had? Well, certainly secondary factors were involved in that, where your parents lived at the time, right? But ultimately, the Bible traces the answers to these questions back to God. Notice David's amazing confession in Psalm 139. He says to God, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
Now, does such an assertion of the sovereignty of God ordaining all of his days and knitting him together and all of this, does that cause David to break into a debate on where human freedom lines up with God's sovereignty? No. What is his reaction to all of this? He worships. Very next verse, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. I would hope that would be my reaction and yours to the reality of God's sovereignty, worship. Now, sometimes believers think, okay, God rules over the big stuff of life, but he can't be involved or really care about the movement of a blade of grass in the wind or the fall of a leaf. He can't be involved in the little issues, can he? Maybe you've heard of the poem called The Nail. It goes like this, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of the shoe, the horse was lost. For one of the horse, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the battle was lost. For one of the battle, the kingdom was lost, all from the want of a horseshoe nail. What is that saying? God has got to be sovereign over the little things if he's going to be sovereign over the big things. R.C. Sproul describes it like this. Look at this quote. If there's one maverick molecule in this universe running free from the sovereign control of God, we have no reason to believe any future promise that God has made. What? There's one free-floating molecule that's somehow not connected to God and we have to question God's promises? Because that one maverick molecule may be the very thing that will destroy those plans. But thanks be to God, there are no maverick molecules running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign government. So God's sovereignty extends over the general ordering of our lives. How about so-called chance events? Well, there's an interesting little incident recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 22 that reads as follows. An Aramean soldier randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops. And the arrow hit the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So here's this enemy soldier. He pulls back on his bow. He lets the arrow fly, goes up into the air. He just shoots it in the direction of a bunch of Israelite troops. And it comes down. And of all the people it should hit, it's the king. And it passes through some folds or joints in his armor so as to hit a vulnerable spot. And the king dies that same day from his injury. What are the odds, right? He just fires off this arrow, kills the king. The previous day, a prophet of God said if, to the king, if you return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. And he predicted that the king was going to die in that battle. So there are no chance events. There are no accidents. There are no events that come as a surprise to God. So he's up in heaven going, oh boy, I didn't see that coming. Nothing like that. Okay, how about immoral actions? Well, God is not the author of sin. Of course not. We have choice, remember? But he permits evil and uses even our sinful choices for our good. Great story. Joseph, Old Testament, book of Genesis. Dad gives his son Joseph a coat of many colors. Brothers become jealous. 
Their desire to, is to kill their brother Joseph, just as they're about to do that, wouldn't you know it? Here comes a caravan heading for Egypt. They sell the brother, he goes into Egypt. He ultimately, through a series of events that take place over many, many years, becomes second in command in the nation, prime minister. Meanwhile, back home, dad says to his brothers, dad thinks Joseph is dead, Go down to Egypt, buy some grain. There's a famine in the land. They go to Egypt, have to stand before their brother who identifies himself. And he says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. It's almost as if Joseph was aware that Romans 8, 28 would one day be written. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. No coat given to Joseph. Brothers don't become jealous. Brothers don't become jealous. They don't, you know, send him to Egypt. No trip to Egypt. He doesn't ultimately become prime minister. And maybe, just maybe, the famine strikes this family and they all die. The family that would ultimately give us Jesus Christ. So you see how God is orchestrating all of these kinds of things in our lives. So God is involved in our lives in everything. Another lesson, God causes everything to work together in our lives. In other words, it may appear to each one of us that the things that happen to us that we don't particularly like are just sort of random incidents, isolated events. But what this is really asserting then is that they're more in, interdependent parts of a process that God has in mind for us. Look at this quote, see what I mean. To bake a cake, you must use flour, salt, raw eggs, sugar, and oil. Eaten individually, each is pretty, I would say, disgusting, <laughs> distasteful or even bitter. But bake them together and they become delicious. If you will give God all your distasteful, unpleasant experiences, he will blend them together for good. All things, God causes them to work together. Okay, what is God's ultimate purpose in all of this? Why does he allow difficulties to come our way? Well, this verse answers the question. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good. Now notice, first of all, Let's make sure we understand what he means here by good. Cancer is not good. Mental illness, not good. Disabilities, not good. A lot of the difficulties that come our way are not good. What it's saying is God is going to work in them to bring good to pass. And what is the good? Romans 8:29, to be conformed to the image of his son. That is what God has in mind for each one of us as authentic Christians. So it's talking about the character qualities of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things being worked into our lives in greater measure in part through suffering. Now think about this. Think about the people in your life who have meant the most to you spiritually. 
More than likely, they are individuals, their gentleness, their love for you, their concern, their compassion, all of these things reveal Christ to you. And they probably are reflected from somebody's life who has known firsthand about difficulty and suffering. It's the experience of the psalmist, Psalm 119. First of all, he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. I was down a path that wasn't good, not God honoring. I got afflicted, what's the result? Well, now I obey your word. And then he adds, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And that's the story of many people in this room. Some of you came to saving faith in Jesus because of a difficulty. Others of you have grown tremendously as a result of some crisis that came your way. So yes, God is involved in all things for the ultimate good of conforming us to the character of Christ. All right, to whom is this particular promise given? To whom does it apply? Well, you notice that there's a restriction here. So it does not say God causes everything to work together for the good of everyone. No, there's a restriction. First, the restriction is limited to those who love God. So in other words, Christians are the only ones who are really entitled to God's comfort. Now, God may be pleased in his grace, his common grace, to extend a measure of comfort to some people that are not Christ-like or believers, but the promise is extended to us. So do you see how this becomes a means of witness for us to our friends who are outside of Christ? We can say, you know, I don't wish this on you, but the day might come when you're going to face a difficult season, a tragedy, a loss of some type. And I just want you to know, if that should ever come your way, you're going to want real, solid comfort. And the only way you can get it is by committing yourself to Jesus, because that's the source of real comfort for each one of us. So the promise is limited to those who love God. I sure do hope you love him. But there's another restriction found here, and that is those who are called by God. Now, I've been asking myself this week, why do you suppose God adds this particular phrase? If he's only concerned about limiting the verse to say it's for believers, the first one, it's for those who love God, would seem to do it. Why does he add this phrase, those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Well, I think for two reasons. One is it sets them up for what it will share in the next verse. But I think it also explains why anybody loves God at all. Why is it, if you're here today as somebody who loves God, why is it that you love God? Because by nature you don't. This verse in Romans 8, 7 indicates to us that our attitude is one of hostility against him. We don't want to submit to God's law. Nobody does nor even can we. We have free will, but the free will says, I don't want God. So if you're here as a lover of God, there's only one explanation. God has called you, and he's brought you in his providence through a lot of different circumstances and relationships to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Now, I want to give you an example of this and then wrap up the teaching. You may know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, but if you don't, she's now 73, 
the age of 17, she went diving off this board and um, hit bottom, fractured her neck, became instantly paralyzed from the neck down. Went through a, a season of deep depression, couldn't move her fingers, toes, anything, nothing below her shoulders. Self-pity, suicidal thoughts, cancer twice. God has used this woman, though, greatly, starting an international ministry, Johnny and Friends, where they give wheelchairs to people with disabilities in third world countries, speaking engagements around the world. She's a recording artist, paints by holding a brush in her teeth, painting beautiful works of art. Well, this is what she says, which I think is a great summary of what we've been learning this morning. We aren't always responsible for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. However, we are responsible for the way we respond to them. We can give up in depression and suicidal despair, and that's where she was. Or we can look to the sovereign God who has everything under control, who can use the experiences for our ultimate good by transforming us to the image of Christ. God engineered my circumstances. Are you kidding me? You're involved in a wheelchair. You, it takes your workers two to three hours every day to get you out of bed in the morning for breakfast and two or three hours to get you ready for bed at, then at night, suffering like this. Are you, God engineered my circumstances? My injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help me conform to the image of Christ, something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, and even joy. So let me wrap this up by sharing with you very quickly three thoughts by way of application. Number one, this verse gives a sense of security in the face of national and international unrest. Just one day this week, decide you're going to watch the news or read a newspaper account, you know, Pioneer Press, Star Tribune, CCO, whatever, and you get this picture of a world that's broken. Crime, violence, racism, sex trafficking, the whole deal. God is not up in heaven going, yikes, what do I do now? It was during a time of national unrest that a nation turned to God and found the words of a poet very helpful that were later put to music. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. The city of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemy troops, we're not going to be afraid. Why not? Because we know the God who rules the nations. He is our God, and he is for us, and he's given us promises. Secondly, it gives a sense of inner peace in the face of our personal trials. Thirdly, it deepens our veneration and our love for God. So I'm wondering this morning, who's in charge of the world in which you live? What do you think? The Bible asserts God is. 
As important as it is to go through this verse as we've done today, the reality is here's a verse that you and I will not ever totally understand. God isn't asking you to understand it. He's asking you to believe it. So do you. If you do, your life can be more solid and secure than Mount Everest. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that when life stinks, when hard, difficult things come our way, that you have not forsaken us. Nothing comes as a surprise to you. You're at work in it all, fulfilling your marvelous plan of conforming us in greater measure to the character of Jesus. So Lord, we're asking you today, especially to draw near right now to any of your children here this morning or watching this service online whose hearts are overwhelmed with pain. Help each of them and really all of us during such difficulties, not to doubt your presence or your love, but to continue to trust you to accomplish the changes in us that are for your glory and our ultimate good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus the Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.